Hi, this is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. I'm Dave Vanderveen. And uh, yesterday I did a great podcast with my brother-in-law, Joe Vandermeer. He's a doctor, Dr. Joe Vandermeer. He's a head and neck specialist in West Michigan. Uh, so he does head and neck surgery. He went to Johns Hopkins uh, and the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for the School of Medicine. So he's a great doctor, went to some of the best medical institutions in the country. He's also the head of his physician's group at the hospital where he practices at Holland Hospital. So he's involved in some of the public policy and public public medical uh, decisions that happen among him and his physicians group, as well as he's well-read, uh, well-articulated, and one of the more interesting uh, people that I talk to about healthcare in America in general. But I thought it'd be interesting to have a little uh, more specialized, more focused conversation about what's happening in one region of America, West Michigan, how that's different than what's happening on the east side of the state in Detroit why we're experiencing the pandemic we are, some of his thoughts as a medical professional, as a doctor, about uh, how we should be living our lives and, and um, you know, what we could have done better, uh, lessons we can learn, how we can improve our practices as this uh, dynamic uh, new world we're living kind of unfolds. Less about pointing fingers and more about learning from, from our mistakes in the past. I think it's one of the more thoughtful, helpful, and useful conversations I've had with anybody about uh, about this pandemic and uh, our role in it and maybe where it's going to take us in the future. I hope you enjoy it. I try to bring authorities on who have something useful to tell us and uh, people that aren't tied up in the politics of it so much, but more involved in the day-to-day -day life and practice of this new world that we have. I hope you enjoy it. Remember, this isn't a spectator sport. Love to get your comments, feedback, and how you're applying the lessons that you hear here. This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. We're live today with my brother-in-law, Joe Vandermeer. It sounds like Vanderveen but it's got two different letters. Yeah. <laughs> Vanderveen means from the, the swamp, I think, or peat bog, and Vandermeer. Peat bog, yes. Yeah, Vandermeer means from the lake. Yeah. So you guys kind of, you were upstream from us apparently, or maybe downstream, upstream. Yeah, the lake flows down to the peat bog, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we actually went, uh, two years ago, we went to the Netherlands, and there's a guy there who's sort of peripherally related to us. Yeah. And he, he was, for a long time, he was an attorney in the Netherlands, and, and then he was—he uh, was an ambassador to one of their sort of island nation provinces or whatever. And then he worked for their what kind of would be their Department of Agriculture, and then he, yeah. he retired. Nice, Red Six, <laughs> <laughs> Red Leader. It's Porku pork Jenkins. That's my workout T-shirt. Right. It motivates me not to become Porku Jenkins, but. Keep going. Right. Keep going. It's good you got Canute to keep you from doing that. Yeah. Be terrible. I don't want the <laughs> I don't want the COVID nineteen to become the COVID twenty. What? Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, so this guy retired and he started being a uh, he started doing genealogy. So he we went and my whole family went and we actually went to Hollum, which is the city in the little province of Friesland that my grandpa grew up in, and we saw the the church where my great to the fifth power grandpa was baptized and married and the little, the little plot of land against a body of water, which was what he owned in 1815 when Napoleon said we had to have last names mm. and we became Vandermeer. Cause you're from the lake. Yeah. Well, it really turned out to be kind of a glorified irrigation ditch. It was, <laughs> it was not. Welcome to Friesland. Right, exactly. It was not impressive. Uh, in fact, my, I think my eight-year-old niece uh, looked at it and she goes, I'm underwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, we did a, so both of our families are, you know, at least half from Friesland, right? And uh, which is why our children play the banjo so well. Yeah, indeed. Right? Yours and mine. Um, but the, because Sarah's family's half Friesian. My dad's family is Frisian. Are you guys 100% Frisian or half Frisian? Or what's your percentage Frisian? My mom's family is from Groningen, and my dad's family is from Friesland. Okay. Groningen. So, so Groningen is just a little northeast yeah. of that. I should probably put that in context for people. There's the Netherlands. There is a province called Holland where Amsterdam is. My mom right. came from Zeeland, which is south of Holland, another province. If you go north of Holland across the... Zyder Z, you run into yeah. mostly Friesland. It's a little yeah. bit of, uh, there's another province just over from it that they retracted from the water not that long ago, but it's mostly Friesland. And then if you go north of Friesland, there's, there's Groningen, which is a small, not very small province. And the, uh, the Frisians still speak Frisian, which yeah. is like the only medieval language still spoken in Europe. Like, I think yeah. it's like Angles language, basically. It's like Old English, yeah. but from a Dutch person. 
You so, gotta have yeah. a pewter mug to speak Frisian. <laughs> Isn't it weird? so i wanted to so we have some history you married my sister you're still married to her god bless you no i love my sister jane and uh and our family um but tell me about um tell me i I was i thought it might be interesting to talk a little bit about you're you're nose and throat specialist like my father Mm -hmm. um and you practice in west michigan you and my dad practiced for a little bit um Tell me what's going on right now with COVID-19, maybe in Michigan and in West Michigan where you guys live and how it's, how it's affecting your practice and what you're doing. Yeah, so um, in Michigan writ large, it's primarily in Eastern Michigan, in Macomb County and Wayne County. Um, overall right. within Michigan, there that, that's basically the Detroit and Detroit suburbs. Right. Um, <clears throat> I think overall in, in Michigan, there are maybe I want to say 18 or 20,000 positive cases. Um, there are on the order of 800 or so, uh, let me see here. I want to say it's about 800 deaths in the, in the state of Michigan. Okay. Um, there are in West Michigan and specifically in Ottawa County, which is where Holland, which is where not the province of Holland, but the city of Holland, Michigan is where I live. Uh, Strangely, the, a lot of Dutch Dutch uh, Americans living there, isn't it? Though that's right. It's like the Dutch American, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think that we have fifty-six positive cases uh, in Ottawa County, okay. and there have been no deaths. Uh, Grand Rapids, which is which is in Kent County, which is sort of the bigger West Michigan city, um, I think is on the order of uh, several hundred cases with maybe a dozen or two deaths. So it's clearly a, it's clearly within Michigan, primarily from the Detroit area, and then it's kind of spreading out from there. How much testing are you doing? Uh, it's still quite limited. Um, I think as of either t- either today or yesterday, they revised the state guidelines as to who could test or who would get tested. Uh, I think that the the change was primarily in that now they would open it up to any, you know, anybody they call essential work. So that includes anybody who's got a job that is, is, uh, you know, grocery store stockers and clerks and, and cashiers and delivery people, anybody that's kind of maintaining the food supply and, and so forth, uh, healthcare workers, all of those people are now open to more consistent testing. Uh, but my feeling is that testing is still woefully limited. Mm. Um, the, I don't know that we have any official estimates, but sort of, you know, back of the napkin estimates by uh, physicians I know are that something like about 10 times the number of diagnosed cases are currently within the community. Right. Uh, Well, and and I think like here in Laguna, we had early testing. One of the um, private medical practices had tests and was offering kind of drive up testing. So a kind of a socially distanced test. And this was like right at the beginning, like before there was even a lockdown or quarantine. And um, the interesting thing is, so, you know, so we've had a lot of testing in Laguna. So we're over indexing in the number of reported cases because obviously right. we've been testing people. <laughs> like we, right. if we have more cases than Irvine or we did have more cases than Irvine or Anaheim, which are much bigger cities in, in Orange County. But, you know, also we tested 10 times as many people. So it's, you know, right. kind of there's a correlation or indirect correlation there. But the... Um, yeah, so I think that's really interesting, but you're not seeing, so the hospital's not being overwhelmed right now, and... Uh, no, and I, I think, I mean, a big part of that is just who who gets hit first, you yeah. know? I mean, New York gets hit first, right? I mean, it's a big international hub, and it's an incredibly crowded and, and powerful city, and... It, well, it's it, where it, a lot it, of it, Europeans are going to hit U.S. too, right? I mean, that's... Right, and, and it, it gets hit before any of the scariest stuff happens, right? So... It, there's a whole thing, you know, all these comparisons to the flu virus of, of the Spanish flu, the 1918 flu, yeah. and the comparison of Pittsburgh or Philadelphia and St. Louis. And the, a lot of people have kind of made this, oh, you know, St. Louis did all the right things and Philadelphia didn't. It, it, it really is just that they got hit at different times. Yeah. You know, and and the, the virus was really raging and rampant within the country by the time uh, St. Louis was really affected and they had already shut down. And yeah. there were probably some, some details about, you know, public health responses as well, but 
clearly New York gets hit before the, the restrictions are all in place. Clearly Detroit gets hit first. By the time Macomb County is on the upswing, we've already shut down. And so we're not having anywhere near the transmission. You so, also have a, a smaller population that's more exactly. spread out. And that's also probably more compliant, right? When I'm assuming when you, know, you see something bad happening in Detroit, people in West Michigan, yeah. you know, there's just, there's going to be a different, different level of response in general. Um, yeah. People well, in Italy have, too, was, Italy was I mean, running out of places to put the coffins. They were running yeah. out of coffins. You know, yeah. By the time it hits Detroit, there are real examples of how bad this can really look. Right. No, that's, that's, it's, uh, it's interesting. We were sharing some, uh, some articles that we were reading and ju just to put in perspective that you went to medical school, you, you did your, um, you went to university of Wisconsin, Madison. Or, or I went, to, I went to Calvin for undergrad. I went to the medical college of Wisconsin in Milwaukee for medical school. And then I went to Johns Hopkins for my ENT residency. So, you know, you, you're a real doctor. <laughs> I'm not going to make jokes about people who call themselves doctors that maybe wouldn't put in the same category, but the, um, you know, you've gone to real medical, I'm a medical doctor. We'll say real that. medical doctor. Yeah. So, and you've gone to a great, I mean, Johns Hopkins, one of the best schools for ENT in the, in the world. So you're, you know, so you're not just, you've got some real authority to talk about these things. We were, we were looking at some of these articles and talking about um, some of the criticisms of you know, different groups. Obviously, China is run differently than the U.S. is. Um, you've got a World Health Organization that is more like the UN of of medical knowledge and has a lot of it has it has a lot of politics, but it also has. Um, I think you know. I don't think people are intentionally trying to hurt people. Um, what's some of your what, what are some of your thoughts about criticisms, concerns, things uh, that were handled poorly, things we could have done better, and what are some of the best practices that maybe you're thinking about right now? Yeah. So the first thing I'd say is I'm, I'm not, I don't have a public health degree. I'm not a virologist. Um, I, I'm sort of a, I'm sort of an armchair political junkie. So. Um, but you are but, the head of the physicians group in your practice, in your, in your hospital, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the chairman of the board of our physician hospital organization. Um, and we've had some, some part in responding to this. I'm, I'm sort of, in various positions of leadership within the hospital. So I have, I have at least some connection to the people who are, are guiding that response from the hospital standpoint. Um, I think in terms, of, in terms of how we locally, so I mean, I guess there are like four levels of response for me personally. I mean, the first level is just like, have I got food for my family? You know, what are we gonna, you know, what, do we have enough cash on hand? That's just like the first day that they shut down, have you got that stuff? The second one is, my office, like, what am I going to do to take care of people? It's not, none of the things that I do on a daily basis stop happening, right? I mean, I've been booked six weeks out for a year, and all of those things are health problems. Granted, most of them are kind of quality of life problems, but what am I going to do about the 80-year-old people who are they're still getting dizzy? They don't stop all this because there's a public health emergency. So how do we manage that while still protecting myself, my partners, my office staff, um, you know, protecting the 80-year-old who's going to come into a healthcare facility? That seems like a horrible idea. So a lot of it was standing up um, video visits, telephone visits. Um, how do we deal with um, payment? How do we try and keep our employees on? How do we make sure they're safe and they're, we don't lose that? I mean, there's a huge amount of knowledge base that we really need. Um, so that was kind of the second phase. The third phase is what do we do as a community? Um, and a lot of it is just a lot of social distancing, a lot of you know, trying to, to communicate with everybody I know and have the physicians in the, in the community talking with their patients about this. I mean, like when I do video visits, I'll talk to people about their ear infections or their you know, whatever. But my last question to them is always, do you have any questions about the virus? Do you have any questions about why we're doing this, what the response is. And that's, you know, that's kind of what our job is, is to, to help people understand why we're doing it. Do you have um, action plans that you're putting together for your patients or for your family? I'm, I'm sure you do for your family, but do you want to walk yeah. us through some of the action plans? Like, here's how we're going to manage this. Here's how we're going to behave. Here's how we're going to change our life right now. 
Yeah, I mean, most of it is stuff that you, I mean, that you post a lot about, like how to socially distance, how to stay active, how to do things uh, to, to stay healthy. Um, most of the action plans we have, because I mean, when we're talking about a virus, almost our entire response, our entire treatment regimen is public health, right? I mean, we don't have a virus vaccine. We don't have live virus attenuated versions. We don't, we don't have any way to prevent this other than not to get it. All of the treatments that we have, all of the studies are being done about medicines to use and ventilators and steroids and all this stuff. It's all treatment after the fact, which is functionally just supportive care to keep you healthy enough so that your body can fight it, right? So in terms of action plans, I mean, for us in our office, a lot of it is just how do you, I mean, ENT is not generally one of the, the front line. Hey, how are you doing, Sarah? No, sorry. I hope this isn't a real podcast. It is a real oh, podcast, sorry. but it's okay. okay I, I Sarah's, like, this is my wife, Sarah. If you're listening, instead of watching, my wife, Sarah, just came in. She loves my brother-in-law. I, and she wanted to say hi. Who doesn't love Joe? Everyone loves Joe. We call him, we call him Super Joe. He's a wonderful I call him Mini Ted because he looks more like my dad than I do. Not really. But <laughs> <laughs> I might act like him more like him. <laughs> No, I'm anyway, joking about that. I'm really that. sorry for messing that up, but um, but we miss you guys, and um, we all look alike because we're all. Oh done. my gosh, that should be said. We actually would be, were it not for this terrible, terrible disaster, we would be surfing right now. Here, we would, you would be here, and we would be surfing together. And uh, I'm so bummed you're not here. We had such a cool zone. We had a really cool uh, rental house That's lined up for guys, you, but yeah. um, you yeah. stay with us, of course. But we had a really cool zone lined up. We've for got you. that zone, yeah. Since we've been doing the. The home, all the home this stuff, is half the fun of a podcast now is, you know, when I'm doing remote podcasts, usually it's because I'm on the road or something. Now we get now sissy. We've got, we've got <laughs> like, special co-host sissy. Now, now I just bomb his podcast like all the time. Nah, <laughs> you, you could be like Andy to my Conan. Exactly. Right. <laughs> either, either that or you could bring some sanity and some stability. Stan away. <laughs> no. the, the sanity. The, she's the straight man. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Like, does You're that mean the gay man? Right. I guess so. Yeah. Well, anyway, Joe, you know, love you and Jane. Love your boys. Miss you guys. And you know what we should do? We should start, I should start co-hosting with Bert Dirksy. Oh, my gosh. That oh would my gosh. <laughs> That'd be kick aspirational. That would be truly quick kick aspirational. Right. Okay. <laughs> That's a follow-up to this. So, so, so we're talking about the, the plans that you're doing. So you guys are following most of the standard uh, action plans that we've talked about, the hygiene, yeah. sanitation. So, and so ENT generally is not a huge frontline uh, provider for this. I mean, right. really our only role in this is do, do people need to have breathing tubes put in and are there not enough physicians who normally do that, like emergency medicine physicians or anesthesiologists or hospitalists? So you would we have not ventilators been, and things like that if you needed yeah, to. Yeah, we have not been called on to do any of that stuff. The only other thing would be, are we involved in putting in tracheostomies or something like that? That we're, we're not, at least in our community, we have not been involved in that. Um, those are all fairly risky procedures in terms, of, in terms of this virus because they tend to aerosolize a lot of secretions and people, people get very sick. And if if you look in, in Wuhan and the data there, um, <clears throat> for instance, I think, um, I can't remember the name of the guy, the, the whistleblower, uh, Liang, I yeah. think was his name. This is, this is the doctor who first started seeing the cases and, yeah. and finally well, kind of... He was the one that first, like, he posted the message to his medical school classmates and then got punished for it. He was an ophthalmologist. Oh, wow. Uh, hey, doctor. And it's, so you know, people who are, who are putting their face right up in front of other people. So that's kind of why for the most part, our office is shut down. I mean, unless you have an active infection, uh, active bleeding or a growing tumor, you really don't need to be seen in our office. Right. Um, and you're doing a lot of like tonsils, adenoids, hearing right. aids, uh, ear, inner ear surgeries. Yeah. My area of expertise is ear surgery. Uh, my partner does a lot of reconstructive surgery for reconstruction of like facial plastics defects. Uh, and then my other partner does a lot of endocrine surgery. So thyroid and parathyroid surgery. And then the rest of it's kind of nasal surgery, sinus infections, nasal obstruction, that kind of stuff. Got it. So. So what are you guys doing? How are you? You've got two boys, my, my nephews. Uh, <laughs> 
what are what are Joan and TJ up to? How are they staying? They're and they're in junior high and early high school, right? Uh, they're both. It's seventh and eighth grade. Seventh and eighth. I'm uh, sorry. I was thinking yeah. Jonah was in high school, but so so he's early teens. Going anyway. into the this is the third or fourth. I think we're going into the fourth week. This is the fourth week of them off school. Um, we're we're losing our minds. Uh, <laughs> no, I think. I mean, a, a lot of it was self medicating. Oh yeah. Well, this really is not a vacation. But I always feel like on vacation, the five o'clock drinking time, it's just, it's very fluid, you know? <laughs> Two is like five if you flip it upside down. It is. It does look very similar. So um, Jane actually, I think, put a little kibosh on that because I, I ran through a whole bottle of uh, a Kirkland bottle of vodka and <clears throat> she didn't refresh that for me. <laughs> I, <laughs> we've been pounding, you know, I, I don't like to admit this. We, Sarah and I didn't really even know what White Claw was until last fall. We ended up in... <laughs> Sadly, we ended up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and thought the only thing we could buy after nine was White Claw because we thought we were getting away with it, and the clerks didn't know it was alcohol. So we ended up drinking, of all the places to discover White Claw, Green Bay, Wisconsin, where we should be drinking, you know, the champagne of beers. And anyway, so we kind of fell in love with White Claw because, you know, it's low calories, easy to drink. We, we, we kind of put the kibosh yesterday on, like, how many white claws per day we should be drinking because it's just like <laughs> i feel like i'm just hydrating but <laughs> the world's gonna run out of aluminum at this rate <laughs> yeah oh um, so yeah i mean I, the probably the broader thing is like is protocols there's so basically any hospital that has uh that accepts medicare payment has to have a, an emergency response team um, and they, they have different names for them. But basically, you have to have a team that, that is ready to stand up some kind of multi-pronged response to emergencies, be it natural disaster or, I mean, obviously, a hospital, it's primarily going to be an infectious question. Do you guys have a um, cool name for yours? Is it like the Super Adventure Club or something awesome? Um, I'm not going to tell you. That's the one thing I can tell you. <laughs> no. I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I'm actually not on it. It's, it's mainly administrators because again, so much of it is public health. Like how do we put the appropriate number of masks in this spot? How do we take the appropriate number of employees? And actually I, I would have to say Holland hospitals response has been remarkably coherent and effective. Um, they have, maintained basically all of their employees and just deployed them in different ways. So for instance, I was, I was walking into the hospital to do a consult on someone the other day and one of the speech therapists who I oftentimes work with was manning a temperature station to take my temperature when I came in. And was it, uh, did they do it anally or orally? Never mind. <laughs> it's a temporal artery probe. Thank you very much. It's not an anal probe. That would be more accurate, though. <laughs> I mean, if you're really looking for accuracy. Bend, off, bend over, Dr. Joe. We have to take your temperature. I'm not falling for that again. <laughs> so they, but they have a, they have a four-phase plan. And we're still, in, I think, in phase one, which is basically just like clear out the hospital, make sure that we're ready for patients when they come in. And it, it goes the gamut up to phase four, which is like there's a tent out in the parking lot with beds and ventilators in it. Um, We've looked at one of the one of the area senior homes that has um, it's it's actually not like a, a nursing home it's a senior activity center called Evergreen Commons and they have a number of rooms and we could I'm not kidding man it's That's awesome a great name. yeah <laughs> Evergreen so they they have a they have a, a whole they have a whole plan for how they could turn that into overflow beds and it's just down the street from the hospital so it. It, there's just there's a lot of creative thinking about how to try and manage that if it were to happen. That's great. No, it's it's great to be that proactive. And I mean, I think you know, our our president has had mixed reviews on his response. Um, he gives himself very high marks for cutting off the China travel early, which I, I think was that probably you know hindsight probably wise. Um, but uh, you know, guessing about when it might be over, uh, you know, maybe not this not the smartest strategy in hindsight. Or, or with foresight. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, right, right. And with complete lack of information. I, the thing is, I think that uh, I, I actually got into a discussion um, with my neighbor the other day. 
and he's really a he's a smart guy and a really nice guy and i was really quite taken aback when he said i think he's doing an amazing job and i thought i have not heard somebody that i respect say that out loud like it did not occur to me that that was a a, a belief that you could hold and still have a brain to hold it in um and so and why I, is that so why did he think that and what, like, what was the foundation? I'm, I'm curious, I'm kind of, you know, at this point I'm kind of done arguing with people who have right. beliefs that are hard to substantiate, like whether or not, uh, you know, bats are being weaponized with 5G and chemtrails. Um, I'm, just really curious, I'm just really curious why they think that, you know? Well, so why I mean, do they I think, think that, that? Well, so I, I have been very hard to believe that, um, regardless of this public health emergency, there is going to come a time when this, this presidency ends and we're going to have to be able to have a conversation as if we're, you know, all Americans and we have a commonly held set of beliefs. And if, if we alienate everybody by telling them that they're so stupid that they can't possibly be, have value, that's a really big problem. And to his credit, he was, he was quite, uh, he just said, look, I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Um, I think that um, in that vein, I went and did a bunch of reading about what was the response and what, what was the problem with our response, what did we do right and what did we do wrong. Um, I think that getting into the details of what he said is sort of is a fool's errand because What he says is so inconsistent um, that it doesn't make sense half the time. Um, I think that when he reads a prepared, and I'm talking about Trump here, but when he reads a prepared script, you can be sure that at least half of it is right, you know? And other than that, I'm not sure. And so I guess to a certain extent- But do you know what really, you have? <laughs> that's, that's the problem. That is a huge problem. But I think to a certain extent, the key is to figure out what is, what is actually happening. Because one person sets a certain tone but that's a massive institution, which and a series of different institutions, which are supposed to implement policies. So, in search of some rational explanation for it, it's very hard to look at one thing and say it was all bad, you know, or it was all good. Um, I think that of the things, so I'll start with the the list of things that were done well, which I think is a short list. But <clears throat> the the closing off travel from China in you know, mid to late January was a reasonably good choice, especially looking back. Now, you could make the argument that that's kind of like congratulating a pig for oinking. You know, I mean, like that is his baseline belief is that we should close borders with people we don't like. So it's, it's not, it wasn't a huge stretch for him to do that. It was just a reason to close it off. He wanted to close it off. Right. It was just a reason, right? Right. So, like, it makes sense that he did that because he really wanted to. He didn't close borders with um, Europe until late February, right? And by that time, it's in Italy, it's in Spain, it's, you know, I mean, France had their first case by then. Germany. And there are many more people coming from Europe than there are from China. So... But that, was, that is one thing you could make an argument, he made a good, a good choice. I think another good choice is the uh, Azar, the, public, the HHS secretary declared the public health emergency in late January. And that, most of that stuff is just like bureaucratic stuff. It frees up money, it frees up what they can do with the money. It puts on pause a lot of the kind of bureaucracy of, of submitting bills to and submitting information to Medicare. And, and it really is just intended to be a relief of normal functions and focus on the problem. So that was, that was a reasonably good choice. Um, I think that um, another, another bureaucratic change was the CMS change where they, it was all kind of in the context of the declaration of emergency, the federal declaration. It, basically said, it didn't really change any regulations, but it just said, we're not going to prosecute anyone for HIPAA violations. We're going to pay for uh, video visits on par with visits to the office. We encourage you to go out and do this. They actually specifically said, you can use FaceTime, you can use um, Google Duo. I can't remember the two, or the two that they 
said you could use. But they basically said, if you're using an end-to-end encrypted video chat system, you can do that and we will count it as a virtual visit. That, that is something that was a huge shift in how we practice medicine. That has been an enormously difficult thing to get done and they almost always pay significantly less. And there's a good reason for that. I mean, there's, there's a huge risk of, of significant fraud, right? right. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons they don't let you do that. Well, you know, I mean, right now we've just got to open it up. We do not want elderly people coming into medical offices. Right. So those are, I think, examples of the things that were well done. Um, I think the emphasis on testing. <clears throat> because until you know where you are and until you can identify who's sick, you're, you're lost. I mean, you're totally blind. And if you look at countries that did it well, and obviously I think South Korea is probably the, the paragon of, of who did it best, um, partly because I guess, I think in 2015 or 16, they had an outbreak of, of MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which, which is another coronavirus, but much more dangerous. So they, in relatively recent memory, had a similar type problem, and they had a game plan ready to go. And by the time we had our first test being like licensed and produced, they were already making a quarter of a million tests a day or a, a week or something like that. Wow. Uh, no, 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 I'm sorry, that's wrong. They had, uh, the, the WHO was sending out 250,000 tests. Uh, South Korea had six, 8,000 tests a day. They were doing 18 or 20 tests per million people. I mean, they were really, really doing a good job of figuring this stuff out. Yeah, and I, I was reading an article comparing South Korea to Italy and they were saying, you know, huge differences in the population. Like a lot of young people got it in South Korea, where a lot of older smokers were getting it in Italy. Oh. Um, but they also said, like yeah, it's a totally different <laughs> population. But they also um, they also were really clamping down and locking down people right away, and had the you know they have the technology. South Korea is an early adopter in technology, yeah. and so I mean they make a lot of it there. But um, I built a data center there in 2000, and they had video cell phones and video in their cars, right? right. Um, but the, the, the thing that I think is amazing is they had the ability to track people, to quarantine people, and to enforce it, where they, they, were, they were applying $8,000 fines to people. Like when people would come into the country, they would put them on two-week quarantine. They would yeah. track you by your phone, and if you broke quarantine, you got an $8,000 fine, which, of course, yeah. you know, compliance is very high with those kinds of fines. Yeah. Yeah, and that was, I mean, that's the other thing about having testing. I mean, you can test all the people you want, but if you don't do anything with it, it's a total waste of time. So, and they, they, they actually never, I don't think, went into a, like a, a countrywide shelter-in-place order. I think they have not had to do that. They have had such good uh, contact tracing through cell phone data and other apps that they just shut down the people who have had any exposure. Right. So um, it's been, it's they're been, really the model of how to respond to that. Yeah, I think Taiwan, South Korea, I, I was going to say Japan, but we've, you know, it's funny. Um, I was in Japan in February for a couple of weeks with some product launches and things we were working on. And I thought, I, you know, I tend to think Japan's one of the safer places just because of the hygiene, the lack of touching, the number of things that they do there really well generally, and the way that they document health. I mean, when you go to any of the major international airports, you walk across two long mats of hygienic um, that are wet with hygienic fluid to clean your yeah. your, your feet and everything. Uh, they manage you, they monitor your temperature coming in the country, et cetera. But the uh, I just learned, you know, to, yesterday morning I was on a four a.m. call with Japanese um, uh, business partners, and. Abe had just declared a state of emergency and it appears that what they were doing was suppressing the information because they wanted to have the summer Olympics so badly. Yeah. And so when we were going into lockdown, I was seeing all these social media posts from friends of mine in Japan, skiing, surfing, having dinners together, no, no masks, no covering, no social distancing. And unfortunately I think they're dealing with uh, the outcome of that now, which is, you know, yeah. hopefully the state of emergency will control it quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, one of the things that honestly I've been thinking about recently is um, the difference between the response, like the, the 
uh, Wuhan response, which was pretty draconian and remarkably effective, but really only possible in an authoritarian country. Um, and I guess the exam at least having an example of South Korea as a representative democracy being able to manage this kind of problem, there are a lot of parts about about I mean, like if I were a middle class Chinese person looking at the response of my government versus the response of Italy's government and the U.S. government, and yeah. you'd have to honestly say, really, is is democracy that much better? So to me, it's actually very reassuring to have you know, we can do this right. We just have to be smart about it. We've got to be, we've got to be aware of these problems and we've got to utilize the mechanism of government efficiently and effectively rather than bumbling it. Yeah. And I think too, with, you know, I, we do a fair bit of business, a lot of business in mainland China. I have for a while and I have a lot of different contacts there. Um, one of them does a lot of work with Sinopharma, which is the largest Chinese pharmaceutical company. And, um, you know, he lives in Beijing he moved to Phuket during this crisis. And one of the things that he um, has repeatedly pointed out to me is that, uh, you know, yes, the lockdown was very effective and, and important. And the way that the Chinese responded with um, field hospitals and other things was, was really, um, you know, outpaced most of the world. And they have the ability to do that in China. Um, but the data that we're getting out of China is probably quite suspect. Um, oh. Totally. We had a staff person from Shanghai in January who was able to visit Laguna for an event we had. And she told us that there were over 100,000 people already in Shanghai hospitals being treated for COVID symptoms. We were calling it coronavirus then, um, which was not being reported anyplace. And my friend in Beijing recently told me that I said, is, so everyone's going, you know, we know that people are going back to work, factories are being reopened. I said, does that mean that the curve's flattened and you're through, through this? And he said, um, the data is very suspect. They sort of think that at this point, the government's probably just thinking they've had enough people exposed to it that they can put people back to work. Hmm. Um, there are some restrictions still in place. But um, I, I think, you know, all the data right now is, to one degree or another, you know, suspect in a way because there hasn't been a lot of testing. How people are reporting the data or reporting deaths is very different. Some people are reporting almost all the deaths related to COVID as a COVID death. Some people, you know, like the Germans are only reporting deaths that are actually directly related to COVID as COVID deaths. So I think a lot of the data is going to have to get cleaned up and correlated. And then I also think we have to look at whose data, who's, who's counting the votes here and, and how, sure. how honest are they and what they're telling us. Yeah, no, I, I, I think... Most of the things that I've seen about about do we think China's doing, I mean, there are proxy things like, um, is Apple opening their stores again? You know, like you look for things that you think you can trust the data and do they really think, like, I agree. I think that the, and this was the whole, we were having this conversation about the WHO and is it beholden to China and what, I don't, I don't really trust that the the numbers China is necessarily giving me are true. I mean, I think that there's some, there's some utility in looking at them, but I'm not sure I'd make public policy decisions based on it. Um, at least not in the U.S. Right, <laughs> Maybe right. In China. Right. Well, and I mean, that's a whole other kind of interesting question. I was listening to a podcast with, uh, it was a, a podcast with a medical ethicist and an economist and talking about what is the, you know, what are the, what's, uh, what are the, how do they say it? is the cure worse than the disease kind mm. of problems. And so that equation looks really different if you don't value life as much, right? Right. And if, if you think that the, the value of a life is not as important, then even if you don't necessarily think that the, the you know, the yuan or, or the dollar or whatever is all powerful, the relative value of life makes that equation look really different. And so it makes it much easier for you to say, well, it's reasonable for us to open back up because the death toll will only be such and such. And it was interesting when that whole thing, I think it was the the Texas, not Texas governor, but like Lieutenant governor or something was like, I think we should just let old people die. So the economy can keep going. Old people are willing to die for capitalism, right? Like, Whoa. Well, (laughs) 
And, and what's crazy to me is typically the people saying that right now also hold very strong pro-life positions, right. but apparently not right. for old people, you know, and ap right. apparently not if it's the stock market or their favorite cheesecake factory or whatever the fuck they're, you know, they're putting in front of a life. I was, I was having, you know, I, I have some private conversations about this with friends and, you know, sometimes it gets a little off color and we were, we were talking about um, this exact really issue. Yeah, it's surprising, right? Um, but one of the things I sent to a friend was I said, you know, if you were really going to be a terrible person, you would just look at the U.S. debt clock right now and you would say, you know, the best way to solve the U.S. debt clock is use herd immunity because the two biggest cost centers for our, our country are Social Security and Medicaid, Medicare. Mm -hmm. And if you just unleash this on the country, it would wipe out a lot of those costs. But the cost of doing that is basically killing the population right. over 60. And, you know, there's a reason we don't, most of us don't like Adolf Hitler very well. And it's generally because the way he right. treated, you know, he had a plan. It was a terrible plan. And that plan was to basically kill the people he didn't like or he thought were too expensive or were a cost on society. And I think as, you right. know, the, one of the great things about what America used to mean or hopefully what it continues to mean is that we do tend to hold life, you know, very sacred, maybe only second to liberty. That's the one thing we'll trade human life for. And we certainly shouldn't be trading it for the, stock, you know, the, the, the Dow Jones average price or the price of a stock or our 401ks. I mean, those are things, particularly the younger people, you know, we can get through that. We can rebuild. But what we can't do is we can't protect the people who are at risk if we unleash this. And I think it's, I think a really good set of questions, hopefully that comes out of this as, the, you know, as this kind of thin veneer of civilization peels away is maybe we start to see our shared humanity and stop arguing about these stupid, trivial things that have nothing to do with what we're really here for, which is hopefully to love each other and support each other. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on, other, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The other, the other really at risk population, I mean, brown skin people, you know, there's a ton of data coming out of New York and out of Detroit about how minority communities are just getting walloped by this. Why is uh, that? I, I you know? think some of it is just, well, like, I mean, there are probably lots of reasons. One of them, one of the stories coming out was that there's this whole thing going on in the Detroit area about water, right? Mm. And the Detroit Water Authority and Flint, and that all was kind of because of this water supply. There are a lot of people with, with back bills and they're getting their water turned off. Well, how do you wash your hands for 20 seconds if your water's turned off? Right. It's, it's the same right. problem on the Navajo reservation. There's right. Navajos, they were interviewing on NPR, a Navajo man who, who has to go and hand carry water to the to their home and when you think about washing your hand for, hands for 20 seconds and discarding that water because they reuse a lot of the gray water right. um i mean the man was weeping he was like i don't know how to do this you know i don't know how to carry that much water and the navajo population is getting completely i mean it's really sad they're getting wiped out right now uh, i think they've had right. about a thousand reported cases and 154 deaths which is the highest one of the highest percentages of deaths i've heard of um Right. Unfortunately, they also had a mass Pentecostal prayer meeting like a week ago, which, uh, you know, so there's some compounding factors there. Um, but I think to your point, you know, look, um, if these are uh, communities where they're living in, you know, an urban center, maybe they're, you know, they're living in close proximity because of that. There's, you know, there's less independence because of some of that. There's a lot of things that are going to compound and create a difficulty for those populations. Is it, is it, so is it, do you think it's primarily social issues or is there some uh, issue with kind of the DNA or the makeup of the person that's, that's causing an issue? Well, I mean, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think most of it's social issues. I mean, I think that there was a, there was a story in the New York Times about um, how the subways are full. Well, the subways are full of people who, who need to get to work. I mean, who is it that you think cleans the hospitals? Right. right. Who is it that you think does the laundry in the hospitals and serves the food in the hospitals? You know, they don't, they're not getting N95 masks to run on the, on the trains. They don't have cars. That's how they get to work, right? Right. <clears throat> so some of it's social. Some of it is lack of health care, right? Those are the populations that don't have health insurance in good times. And so their diabetes is poorly controlled and their hypertension is poorly controlled and their asthma and their, and their COPD is poorly controlled. They tend to have higher rates of smoking and vaping. They're just, it's very hard to be a healthy person if you're living on the margin. 
And so right. they're more susceptible and just because of where they are. <clears throat> like for me, I mean, my income is going to go down pretty significantly eventually because I'm not producing. But I'm not worried my kids are going to eat, right? I mean, I have enough of a cushion so that I'm safe. I have a warm house. I, I know I can procure enough food to keep us fed. You know, there, I mean, what is it? 40, 50% of the population can't sustain a $400 charge. Right. Well, so, there's a lot of kids in our school systems that rely on the school, the school right? lunch program and breakfast program uh, to be fed every day. Um, right. You know, I think there's... percent of the kids in Holland Public Schools are on free and reduced lunch. There's a, I mean, the number of people on food stamps is remarkable, not in people of all colors. I, you know, and I think to your point on this, you know, if we think about rebuilding a country, I think a big, a big discussion needs to be how do we keep people out of grinding poverty? How do we break the cycles of grinding poverty? How do we help people get control of their lives? And, you know, and how do we do it in a way that encourages people also and, and empowers people to go and build the life they actually want rather than being stuck in some, you know, social program? I think that combination is really important. Do you have any ideas on maybe how this might help us be better human beings and build a better, typically out of these big kind of existential crises in America, whether it was World War II or some of the other, you know, uh, things that have happened, we've come out and built something better. Do you have any ideas on what we might do that would uh, create a better country or better, better nation? Well, um, I would certainly help to have someone who thought that that was, I mean, again, I, I tried to be very positive about the things that have been done. I think the direction that the national conversation is, is largely follows, it largely follows our leaders. And at the moment I, I am, I am appalled at the lack of some compassion and the lack of some, you know, out in front progress, a proactive view of a national identity and a national uh, coming together to work together. Um, I think, I mean, I, I have my biases about Donald Trump and I, I find him, I find him to be a big source of the problem. And I think we're doing all right, despite that fact. But I think that this is, to me, it is very important that we talk about institutions as being incredibly helpful. Yes, they are incredibly frustrating at times, but institutions are invaluable. I mean, it's the whole reason we have societies. If we don't have institutions, we're hunter-gatherers, right? I mean, the whole point of it. Now, certainly that can run amok and that can cause trouble and history is rife with examples of that. But I think, you know, focusing on what institutions can do well and enabling them to do it makes a ton of sense. Focusing on, uh, how we plan for things, how we value uh, pre preparedness, right? Preparedness is a choice. You know, we, had, we have had epidemic outbreaks in the past and we'll have them in the future. It just flabbergasts me that, that we didn't have a kind of on the shelf outline for what kind of uh, rescue package we would need to have. I mean, we basically, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a politician and I'm not an economist, but it strikes me that we dipped into the same well of, you know, tax breaks and subsidies for industries. I mean, why we're subsidizing the cruise industry right now with the, with this $2 trillion bill just makes no sense to me. Um, why, you know, why we're giving the airlines money, almost the exact same amount of money that gave them before, all of which they spent on stock buybacks, you know, why we're not coming up with a, uh, well, I guess I shouldn't say that. I know why we're not doing it because there are special interests, there are interests in it. But I think having a preparedness plan for something like this to say, this is what you've got to do first and then taking it seriously, right? right. I mean, um, th there is a preparedness plan. It was put together kind of in the wake of the Ebola crisis. And Somebody once was telling me about how, oh my gosh, Bill Gates gave this TED talk in 2015 and he was so prescient. He, nobody else saw that. And I said, no, lots a lot of, of people. people. A lot of people did. Yeah. Public health people have been saying this for a long time. Like we all know this is a problem. And when Bill Gates is saying it, that's because his, his nonprofit is working with a lot of these people funding this work because it's so important. 
And he's just basically consolidating that information into a TED talk that people will listen to because he's Bill Gates, which is wonderful. But it's not like Bill Gates invented this any more than he invented, you know, the op the the, the, the object oriented operating system. Right. Right. Well, and so and we I mean we had this plan. We had there was a 69 page document that was designed around how does the federal government use its resources to respond to an airborne flu-like outbreak. And we didn't follow it. I mean, we don't, and it's unclear as to whether the current administration just didn't know it existed or they just didn't like it. Their claim now is that they think, oh, this was dated and it wasn't useful uh, and we've got a better plan. But clearly it outlines, you gotta get, nice, you gotta get protective gear set up. You've gotta get testing set up. You've gotta get all of the states on board and implementing this and, and distributing that stuff. And I mean, it's, it's all kind of easy to say now, but in the, in the fog of it all, it's confusing, right? You need a game plan when it's confusing. And we should be laying that all out and saying, look, this is the package. Break this glass the next time you hear somebody say SARS and do what we said, right? We're not fucking around about this. So, uh-oh, I lost you, Dave. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Sorry, I muted. Um, also, I think if you look at New Zealand, right, I mean, smaller country, but still 5 million people, 6 million sheep. Um, you know, yeah. if, you look at, if you look at, you know, they have a young female a prime minister. <laughs> we don't count hobbits. They count as two-thirds of a person. Oh, but if you <laughs> that's rough. That's a terrible it's joke. It's three-fifths. It's three-fifths, <laughs> sorry, yeah. No, that, those are terrible jokes, but um, Hobbit Town is a whole person. Um, but the, the uh, you know, what they have a female, young female prime minister who doesn't have a lot of ego wrapped up in her job. And they got very proactive on this. Um, they locked down the second they started to see any cases. They've been very strict about it. They've squashed the curve before it even got to an a close to a normal apex. And, you know, they think they're going to be in a, you know, a place to start moving about again socially in a couple weeks. Um, we'll see what happens there. We don't know. But I think, the, you know, they've, they've seen their cases already declining. Right. They've moved through this quickly. They will have to behave differently than they were in the past. We all will, I think, until we have vaccines and antibody testing. Oh, actually, I should ask you if you think that's right. But, uh, but it's just, I think it's remarkable when you see people do it right. It helps us think about how we could have done it differently. Yeah. Well, I mean, she is, yeah, she's quite an impressive leader. Yeah. I, I think on a number of different fronts and for, in response to a number of different events, she has really shown an incredible ability to just say, look, we got to get this done uh, yeah. and do difficult things um, in response to really horrific situations. And I, um, and I think, with I think an, yeah. you're absolutely right about that. You're absolutely right about the vaccine and about serologic testing and about, um, I mean, you know, if you look at the difference between our capacity to deal with problems in 1918 versus now, I mean, they sequenced, I think the first cases were in December, the first was sort of identified uh, virus was in January, like January 6th. By January 12th, they had the RNA isolated and sequenced. Right, amazing. Like it's, it's incredibly fast. Now then, of course, what ended up happening was they didn't share any of the viral particles. So we had the, the RNA sequence, but we didn't have testable material to work with. And again, that's politics, right? I mean, there was a problem where the CDC didn't have their person on the ground in Wuhan anymore because that person's job had been eliminated. And then the government wanted, our government wanted some of this stuff and Chinese government refused. And so somebody went to, uh, a, a private and academic institution to try and that and then and China put the kibosh on that and it was just it was just ridiculous and it's all because of pre-existing stuff because of a dumb trade war basically yeah yeah trade wars which never help anybody um yeah. so do you think uh I mean I'm just getting so because of our global relationships I'm just getting antibody tests this week, like instant at-home antibody tests um, that we're looking at, you know, um, either giving away uh, or doing, figuring out how to distribute in different countries have different regulations on those. 
Uh, in Europe, we can sell them over the counter uh, or give them away with a purchase or do different things. What uh, do you know when in the United States, have you heard any, uh, you know, when we might have antibody tests available here? I, I believe we have uh, approval for antibody tests. I don't know if they are uh, in play right now. I know I've seen <clears throat> approval for, I can't remember what company, I, I, if it's Abbott Labs or somebody has a serologic antibody test. I think test. it's BD, yeah, BD is doing yeah. some with, um, they're doing a, a test, they think they just, they're testing everyone in, um, in uh, what's it, in um, Ski Town in Colorado, uh, Telluride, yeah. which uh, makes me want to move, gives me another reason I want to live in Telluride. Exactly. <laughs> but um, I think it's just, it was a small population they could do quickly that had gotten hit hard by, by the virus. Um, and of course, they're doing it in China, they're doing it in Italy. I think Italy's buying, they're buying hundreds of thousands of tests a week right now, these tests. Yeah. But uh, I'm assuming we're going to be getting them in throughout the United States quickly. I just I just hope it happens fast. Yeah, I think a, a lot of it'll depend on. Well, that brings up a whole other question of once you have immunity, are you immune to SARS-CoV-2, which is what this is now officially scientifically called? Um, part of the problem is there's already documented genetic mutations. If you look at the the sort of index cases going to Europe and then going to USA and, and, and Southeast Asia, there are already documented genetic changes. So one big question will be, does this confer broad immunity? Does it confer sort of a partial protective immunity? Um, what about vaccines? I mean, there, there is a MERS vaccine, so and I think it's theoretically good for two to three years, so you might need boosters and that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, which brings up a whole conversation about vaccination. Yeah, yeah, it sure does. <laughs> Maybe we won't go there today. <laughs> I think we point, can go there. I just don't want to see the comment section afterwards. No, it's okay. We can go there. I mean, at this point, if people don't believe, I mean, what's the, what do you think the, what's the real heart of the criticism of vaccines when people are anti-vax today in, in America, given the body of knowledge we have? I mean, what, what's, what's the... I think I think it's a lack of historical knowledge, and I think it's a, a a predisposition to conspiracy. I mean, the idea that the idea that this is all based on the the desire to make a bunch of money. I I suppose that's true, but um, I, I, there's nothing necessarily wrong people, with making money. What, what, what does that mean? You suppose it's true. Well, I mean, you know, drug companies and vaccine companies want to sell their product and make money. So is there, is there a bias towards having routine vaccination? Yeah, I mean, I guess there is, but the thing is that's not, I mean, it's kind of like saying science says smoking cause cancer. I mean, we know it does. Like, I don't, need, I, don't, I don't need to wonder if, you know, the companies that make steroid inhalers for COPD are biased in suggesting that we, you know, we should keep people from smoking. I have public health data that says that's true. You know, people, honestly, there was a big debate about whether Franklin Roosevelt in his, in the Roosevelt Memorial in Washington should show him with, in a wheelchair. There's, he did not want to be seen in a wheelchair ever. Like right. that was the whole thing. A lot of people, I think, honestly don't know that we had a president who had polio. Most people have never, well, I mean, I guess my, my dad had a friend that had polio, but most people living today haven't seen a polio epidemic. No, good Lord, no. Are you kidding me? Haven't seen a, haven't even heard of a polio epidemic, right? I mean, how, how, would, how would a polio epidemic compare to this epidemic, this pandemic? Oh, I, I don't, I'm not sure I have that information. I think they were, they were equally scary. My suspicion is that that was also profoundly dangerous. I mean, an iron lung was designed because you couldn't breathe, right? I mean, an iron lung was how they kept polio people breathing because we didn't have long-term ventilator use. And it was, right. it was a disaster. Is, is that know? what they were referred to, polio people? I'm not sure. What it was. <laughs> I'm joking. So, no, I mean, it seems to me like, you know, when, when I've talked to people who ha have, you know, concerns about vaccines that are semi-rational, 
I mean, one of the concerns is that, you know, there's, there's mercury in a vaccine, and I think they're referring to multiple use vaccines, which aren't used on children anymore. Um, it was a, basically, there was trace amounts of mercury in some of the uh, preservatives in multiple use vaccines, but that's, that, that hasn't been true, that's I don't think, for a decade. Yeah. Yeah. I, they got rid of that so long ago that it's, it's kind of a non-issue anymore. Right. In addition to which, even when they had it in there, there's really no, there's really no proof that has any demonstrable concerning effect. In addition to which, it's, I mean, the, I mean, the whole thing about does it cause autism, right? There's a website that says, you know, it's uh, www.dovaccinescauseautism.com. So it must be true. What's that? So it must be accurate. No, you open it up and it says, they fucking don't. <laughs> it just says that in big, bold print. Just for clarity. Right. Well, but the thing is, the problem that I, that I, I think happens is we sort of, we focus on the thing that we think we can manage. Right. Right. And so Jenny McCarthy says, I, my kid got a vaccine and three days later he started being autistic. Well, three days later he might have been diagnosed as autistic, but it clearly develops as toddler's age. But you also haven't thought about all of the chemicals that are under your kitchen sink. Well, or how old was the father that, that gave you the sperm for that child? Right? <laughs> well, no, because the, and, I mean, this was, this was in, this was in uh, Science Magazine. Oh, I thought you know, we were impugning Jenny McCarthy. No, well, but, <laughs> but in general, they said, look, the age of the father who's contributing to that child has a direct impact on the number of cases that develop into birth defects, including, including autism or yeah. kids on the spectrum. And of course, nobody wants to talk about waiting to have kids till, till they're later because that's something we choose to do and we want to do because we live in a wealthier society. Yeah. Um, but we want to blame something that we don't have control over. I think I, I, it seems to me that's part of the part of the equation, anyways. Right. Well, I'm again. I'm not. I'm not a public health expert, and I don't. I just when I'm given the opportunity for my children or me to have vaccines, um, I generally say yes. I think there is. There honestly is a scientific debate about should we be doing mandatory influenza vaccinations? Because I think the science on that is not probably quite as firm. I mean, like polio vaccines are, I mean, I'm not a big one for miracles, but they are the miracle of modern medicine. I mean, they are the reason, you know, there's, it's the reason we've got, you know, 9 billion people on the planet in the next 10 years, as opposed Mopox, to one. polio, measles. I mean, those, many of those diseases had been nearly eradicated or were eradicated. Right. Um, do you think, so, how about the grouping of, one of the things that, um, you know, that's come up is that when kids have a lot of vaccines at the same time, that may be problematic. Do you think that's true or not? I don't know enough about the data on that. I mean, I, I guess um, I, I don't have a reason to believe that it's a problem because there's been no public health data to say that it is. If people feel strongly that that's the dangerous factor for their kids, I guess if, if it's enough to get you to vaccinate your kids so that we, you know, we don't have outbreaks of pertussis again, that I think I'm okay with that. But again, if you, I mean, it's a lot of vaccines. If you stretch it out long enough, you're going to have kids going to school who haven't finished their regimen. So you, you also have to get the entire population to come through a doctor's off, office multiple more times than they would if you group them together, which is right. So now you're weighing like some of the outcomes versus the, uh, uh, you know, versus actually getting, getting the population vaccinated. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not an expert in, in vaccine policy. I think as a general public health principle, I think it is an invaluable resource. I think that you can have a discussion about the, the, the speed of the, the regimen, but I think now we're kind of splitting hairs. I think my, my real concern is when people <clears throat> are saying I'm anti-vax because I think I should have freedom or I think I should have, well, you know, the problem is it only works if we do it together, you know? Yeah. And that's so. about having a country and having public health and having, having a safety net that includes, you know, better practices. It's the same reason you can't go shoot your gun off in your neighborhood. Um, yeah. Or, yeah. I, I don't know what you can do in Michigan. Oh. In California, we can't. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? what? I can't? Hang on. <laughs> Chris Romance is going to be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah, our cousin, my cousin. Um, <laughs> who's a wonderful Oh, guy. that actually, that was a whole other area of of kind of debate i mean I, the the south korean model of using 
testing data to do tracking, uh, symptom tracking, uh, movement tracking, all of those things, that's a, I mean, that's a really thorny issue. Like you're potentially uh, giving the government an awful data about where you are, what you're doing, if we're going to implement that. And how do you, how do you say we're comfortable implementing that in an emergency and then being comfortable that they're not going to use it for anything else? I mean, that's a totally reasonable debate. I think it's kind of a moot point now because it's kind of after the fact, but it is something we ought to talk about. Should we have a, you know, an app or some sort of, some sort of mechanism that only HHS can use and it's sort of legally prohibited from infringement by the FBI or the CIA and just say, look, as a matter of public health, we need to be able to get to this data. And it is a, you know, a punishable by death crime for you to use this for law enforcement or whatever. Well, and, and I, well, I do think you could treat it like a HIPAA, like a HIPAA violation, right? right? The Health Information Patient Portability Act really right. protected your patient information at one of the highest security levels, almost like your banking information. And I, 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 I so there, there was a really good article that a friend posted on my Facebook page yesterday about, you know, looking at CCTV and other security camera information that's now being compiled, and and particularly when you're in Europe and Asia you know, the, the breadth of coverage that these cameras have and the way that government surveillance can, can see what's really happening is pretty profound and it's changed without a lot of people really knowing it. There's artists who are actually hacking into it and doing art with it, which is kind of interesting. But, but part of what they were talking about was, you know, now we have, you know, watches, phones, other different um, wearable devices that track our temperature, our heart rate, um, you know, our behaviors, all kinds of health information, which can be really useful in a pandemic or to predict where a pandemic is striking so you can close down whole areas rather than, you know, you, you can kind of surgically focus on locking down areas rather than trying to having to close down the whole country. Um, but I think the, the great question is who has access to that? How are they using it? What's the intent? And how do we protect? Because inevitably, if, if it's free access, it's going to get abused. That's what people yeah. do. And I think the question is, how do you protect people and protect liberty? Taiwan might be one of the best examples. They have the, one of the highest freedom indexes in the world, higher than the United States. Um, and, you know, they really manage this well. And I think it's that there seems to be like a cohesive Asian model of government that it really understands uh, liberty and community in a way right. that might, might help us. Yeah. Well, I think that... The yeah, my, I mean, I'm not, I don't do a ton with, with, uh, I don't do a ton of business or health or anything in, in Asian countries, but my understanding of it is that it's a very communal based family oriented. I mean, the whole reason their last name is first, you know, the surname is first because they value the family and the community above the self. Um, and you only have to walk around America to find out that we value the self above all else. Right. Um, and that, I mean, that has, that's great for normal times, but it's a real problem when you need the community to work together and act together. So. Yeah, and I, I think that's where we're at now. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time today, Joe. I thought you'd have a valuable voice. We, we have some great conversations offline. Um, and uh, I always, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about this, reading about it. You, you have to practice it. Um, you know, you have to practice health. You do, you do touch public policy and health um, as part of your work. And, uh, you know, I know you have a lot of great training and you have a great medical practice. And I appreciate you taking the time today to uh, share some of your thoughts. This is very helpful for me and I hope it's helpful for our listeners. You bet. It's always good to talk to you, man. <laughs> Thanks, Joe.